be curious before critical. If someone has accomplished it in the past, that means it can be accomplished again in the future. You just have to understand how they did it. And so for me, it was like, you're human, I'm human. We can both accomplish the same thing. And that's true in most areas of life. So I asked myself the question, okay, what was the technique that they had? What was the process? Give me the nuts and bolts. And then can I exert the same effort or potentially more? And when you combine those things with a similar technique and a more enhanced work ethic, I think that's when the results come that people don't quite understand because people usually have one or the other. And when you can combine them, the results are parallel. Michael Ambrosino is a well-known student of life. He brings a unique combination of humility and curiosity with courage and self-confidence. As a Cutco rep and manager, and in his successful business career, Michael has been able to dissect the keys to success and has been willing to work to implement what he has learned. His formula for success can be followed by anyone in almost any endeavor. I know you'll enjoy hearing the powerful insights of my friend, Michael Ambrosino. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My guest today is Michael Ambrosino. Uh, Michael worked with the company for four years during college, starting in 2010. During that time, uh, he had a period where he was the number one college student representative in all of Cutco and Vector Marketing, set some records and did some really outstanding work, advanced in the company as far as being the pilot office manager, working with Asim Hafiz back in those days. Today, Michael is the co-founder of The Profile Firm in San Francisco, where he is working with startups to help build their teams to be able to help them accomplish their visions. So he's having success in the hyper-competitive world of Silicon Valley. Michael has a lot of great information to offer today. Thanks so much for making time for the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always a special and warm place in my heart for my Vector experience. Great. Well, I'll look forward to hearing about some of those things. And uh, on that note, why don't we just dive right in and hear how you started with Cutco? Yeah, I was a PR of a friend who was in my homeroom. He recommended me and I was in training on my 18th birthday. And really my first job, it was a little bit of a quirky story for me where it was my first job, meaning that I had no professional experience before no any other experience before. Baseball was a big part of my life. 
And the reason why Vector actually fit in is because I had baseball scholarships. But what happened was I hurt my arm. Junior year, it's really competitive. And that's when you get to all the baseball showcases and et cetera. And I was a pitcher. And so I had opportunities. I was going to sign a scholarship and hurt my arm. I needed a job where I could have a flexible schedule because I had to go to these physical therapy rehabilitation appointments three times a week. And I also really couldn't do any manual labor, which is a lot of the jobs that college students do, like a lifeguard or you know, uh, contracting, things like that. So those were out the window. Vector mm-hmm. kind of fit in perfectly. Awesome. Awesome. So you're in training on your 18th birthday. Yep. Wow. And this is in uh, New York City area? Yeah. The office was in Westchester County, but I'm from New York City. Okay. Got it. Now tell us about some of the early experiences that stand out for you. I just remember my first key staff meeting and we were reading Secrets of a Millionaire Mind with T. Harbecker. I was like, this information is kind of cool. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but it feels like I'm learning some stuff that I've never heard before. Mm. That caught my attention. Whoa, financial habits. Like, I think I just opened a checking account. I think I can try and do some of these things. And I remember saying to myself, okay, this information is valuable. I'm going to come to these meetings more often. Yeah. We give people at Vector an exposure to ideas at a very early age that most people wouldn't think of teaching to people at those ages. It's stuff that should be taught though. I mean, wouldn't you agree that these kind of things should be taught to people in college or maybe even high school? I wish they were. And I think everybody has their own stance on where education should be. But just enabling people to become students of life, to learn things that enhance their own identity, enhance their own perception of themselves, help them think about things in a more introspective way. Those are things that I I wish were taught to me at an earlier age. Yeah. Speak to the role of your original manager, Asim, in your development. I was so lucky. And I'm sure tons of people feel that way about their first manager at Cutco. But for me, Asim, this is one of the most valuable things I think you can hold as a leader. He always saw me bigger than I saw myself at the time. And he always had a vision of who I can be, not prisoning me in the moment of where I am right now. Right. Even when I was in my office, the number three rep for the summer, he kept saying, you could be the next Mike Arrieta. You could be the next Rob Brandt, which were number one scholarship winners before me. And really believe that. And I had to borrow that confidence sometimes because I didn't have it in myself. And he always told me that I can believe in myself. And he gave me a lot of frameworks to be successful in life that I still use to this day. I'm so thankful that uh, he was my first professional mentor. And we still have a really strong relationship where we communicate weekly. Yeah, that's cool that to this day, you, know, you guys still have that connection going where you're, uh, you're continuing to be able to learn from each other. So relatively early in your career, I know that you set a goal to break a national record. It was the, for the month of January. Tell us a little bit about that experience. So I set this goal out. This was uh, 2013, the first time that I set it out, where I wanted to set the January record. It felt like a goal that I could hit because I was going on the management track. So I didn't sell during the summer. So the off season is when I had to do it, but I was also going to school. I still thought I could do it though. And so I wanted to sell. The record was 54,000 for the month of January. And so the first uh, January that I went for it, I worked my tail off 
as hard as I could work logistically and literally in terms of hours, I was at full exhaustion around my college classes. And I sold about $30,000. So I came up really short and the effort was there. It was 100% there. And it was a little discouraging, candidly, because I worked so hard and to fall so short on my goal just kind of left me in a position where I was asking myself, man, like, what do I have to do? Like, am I capable of doing this? Mm. And so I came back the, the next year, um, having gone to a Tony Robbins event, Unleash the Power Within. And I decided that was in November of 2013 that I was going to go after the January record again, which I was kind of scared to do because I failed in my eyes so miserably the time before. But I'm like, well, if I'm scared of it. That's a bigger reason why I should go after this because I can't just run away from things that I'm afraid of my whole life. And so I remember at that event committing to try and break the January record again and coming up with reasons that were more inspiring for me than the previous year of why I was going to break this goal. And before it was really just because I want to make a lot of money and it'd be cool to have my name on this plaque. And then my why the second time was to inspire students around the nation that they could have huge, huge months around school. I wanted them to see set up, pay for their mission, you know, in just a couple months of selling if possible around their classes. And I really wanted to make selling around school a thing Mm -hmm. rather than the summer, which is when a lot of students sell the most. I wanted people to, even if they do a few appointments a week during school, like put some extra money in their pocket and meet some extra amazing customers. And we just, I think we missed that aspect of vector of how we get to network with amazing clients often. But going back to the January riff, I saw Tony say, Hey, you have to read as a man thinketh. And he said it in like one sentence. He's like, by James Allen, pick it up. I just remember going on my phone, going on Amazon, ordering it, getting it sent to my house. And I did that with a lot of books. So I had a bookshelf of a ton of unread books, some that I read too. But the night of, it was a Sunday night and there was one more week left. I'd just come back from the professional development conference, the year-end banquet. And I'd taken number one every category in sales. And I was about at $34,000 in sales for the month of January around my college classes. But I sold and in my head thought I was going to have a big first two weeks because I didn't have classes. Mm. And then I had classes the second two weeks. And so I was in this position where everybody was applauding for me. Everybody was super happy with where I was. But I knew that I still wanted to break this record. But no one was really challenging me to go after it. Like if I just coasted, no one would have said anything to me. If I would have just did what I did, didn't push myself the last week, I'd probably sell six grand, finish 40 grand for the month of January, be number one student in the nation, like all those things. But I'm at my house, I'm thinking over this stuff. I have three appointments booked for the next week and I need to sell $21,000. And I'm like, I've only had a 20K week once in my career and it wasn't around classes. I have no clue how I'm going to do this. And I was like, maybe I should coast. Maybe I should just, you know, do okay. Like people are still going to be proud of me. People are going to still think I'm a, a butt kicker. But I heard Tony's voice, like, as a man thinketh. And I looked at my bookshelf and this book is like, glowing to me, Dan. <laughs> I'm like, I got it's 1 a.m. because I'm like trying to, I'm, I'm up all night trying to figure out how I'm going to sell $21,000 in a school week. 
And I'm like, all right, I'm going to pick up this book. And the book's only 60 to 70 pages. Right. And I read it in one sitting. And I was like, the biggest thing that I can take away from that book is like, your thoughts influence your behaviors, which influence your actions. Mm -hmm. So if I can have control of my thoughts, and if I can think positively, and I can influence those thoughts Mm -hmm. to help me get to my goal, I'm paraphrasing, but one of the important sentences in the book is that when you're belief of doubt becomes more dense in your belief of success, you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. I said to myself, I had to make sure that my beliefs that I was going to accomplish this were stronger than my beliefs that I couldn't do it. And so the last week, I get creative. I did something I never did before. I emailed all my past customers and asked like, hey, can I sharpen your knives? I had never done that before in my entire career up until that point. And I emailed them all. And a bunch of them were like, yeah, like I'll, I'll see if I could squeeze you in. But I didn't have that sort of time to book an appointment two weeks out. And so getting into the last day, I'm $11,000 short of my goal. And I told my roommates, and this is where it got really fun. I told my roommates, don't let me back into this house unless I break the record. <laughs> and so I, uh, I leave for my first appointment. At, it's at 7 a.m., it was a customer that I sold $1,500 to. I was feeling really good. Can opener sale. I'm like, <laughs> I could have been on the phones. This is a waste of my time. And I had four appointments that day. Pick up some momentum. But long story short, at about 11 a.m., I'm all out of appointments. Like I did all of them. And I'm still about $8,000 short of my goal. And I have no appointments. And I'm $8,000 short. What am I going to do? And... I'm not sure that I promote this, but I started just, it was a snowstorm. That's why I started so early. I brought my shovel out the day or for the day. And all the customers that said that they would allow me to sharpen their knives, I just either, since I sold a lot in the same area, I either called and asked if I could come or I just saw if they were home. And I did 14 appointments that day. Most of wow. them. And literally, I sold $3,500 at a an appointment night to a leapfrog of a customer that I sold something to. And I felt like it was fate because on the last appointment, I asked the woman, the appointment's ending at like 1130. She saw me at like 9 p.m. <laughs> and I'm like, I have this crazy look in my eyes where she's like, I'm not going to buy it anymore. And I'm like, I know, I know you just bought like you know $2,000 of this stuff. I'm really appreciative. She's like, she sees it in me. Like, I have one more question to ask. And I'm like, well, I know this is a tough thing. Sasha was your not Sasha was your name, Sasha Blackwell. I'm like, can you, is there anyone you can call that you think would be willing to sit down with me right now? <laughs> <laughs> like, I just moved into the area. I literally know like one neighbor. And I'm like, can we call them? And she's like, okay, I'll, I'll call them. They're probably going to think like my house is burning down or something that I'm calling him at this time. And she calls him and I'm just like, I need to grab that phone. And so I got on the phone. I'm like, I'm so close to my goal. I know it's so improbable that you'll meet with me right now, but I'm right next door. Could I please come over? And sold $3,500 on the last appointment that started. (laughs) And it was like, you just can't write that stuff. And then I got back home in my college apartment at like 2 a.m. Yeah, all my roommates were texting me the entire day, but I didn't respond to any of them because I had no free time to just randomly text people. 
and they opened the door. They asked me, did you break the record? I said, yes. And they like lifted me on their shoulders and we all celebrated together. Wow. Wow. That is really just like incredible to hear. Oh, man. 11K last day and 3,500 on the last appointment. A leapfrog from a customer after 11 p.m. <laughs> In the middle of a snowstorm. That was what was hard. But something Adrian Ivasich actually taught me to think about is like, how can your weakness be your strength? Mm. And the weakness that I had that day is that I had no appointments. The strength that I had is that it was a snowstorm and everyone was home. And so I was able to use that to my advantage that everyone was home during this time. And that was a big reason why I broke the record that day is because everyone was home. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. How does this experience you had going after this record, how does this experience play out in your day-to-day life you know, to this day? I think push periods in general or setting a big goal within Vector, they give you this ability to map out a goal that you want to hit that's really big, that could be really scary and give you chances to execute on it, which is what life is. We're all setting goals all the time. Half the battle is getting the blueprint. The other battle is having the discipline and the work ethic and the belief to manifest this goal. And so Vector gives you that opportunity so often And I tackle a lot of the things that I really want to go after in my life goals currently in the same fashion. Okay, how do I do this? What do I have to do? What are the steps? What's my why behind why I'm doing this? And how can I hold myself accountable to this? And for some people, group accountability is the answer. For some people, it's self-discipline. And understanding how you work, that's something that you can get within Vector that you can take outside of Vector for the future. Yeah, that was a great insight there about the opportunity that we all have to push ourselves towards big goals and the process in doing that, right? Understanding your why, right? What are your reasons for wanting to do this and having enough compelling reasons that you're going to fight through some of the challenge and difficulty, knowing the steps that it's going to take, right? Having the breakdown because any big goal when it's broken down tends to feel a little bit more manageable. And then creating accountability, a system of accountability, you know, support network is a great way of having that, right? Peers or managers that you're talking to regularly that can kind of help keep you on track and keep you motivated. So really good, really good stuff right there, Mike. Tell us about your advancement path with the company during college. So I branched out for my first summer and really probably didn't do it for the best reasons. I did it because I was 18 and I heard about this opportunity to run your own business at 18. I'm like, that sounds so cool. Like none of my other friends are going to be running their own business at 18 years old. Like wait till I tell them what I'm up to. And I had to find my own lease. I had to put the office in my name, hire, train, manage sales reps. An empty office turns into a Cutco Vector sales office. Like that's a lot of work. And I look back at that summer. It was one of the most challenging in my life. But there are moments during that summer that I can pinpoint even now that I remember what my character is. And I remember that who you are during the hard times is really who you are. And I had some hard times that summer. But I remember how I reacted to those things where I didn't have the greatest sales week, where I didn't have the greatest show to training, and how I responded. Like I knew that how I respond right now is actually going to be really important to how I respond to things in the future. 
Yeah, that's such a powerful insight that uh, who you are during the hard times is really who you are. It's a, the uh, challenges that we experience reveal a lot about us that I think it's important to have revealed early on. And it's important for people to learn to respond constructively to challenge and difficulty. Because in life, the challenges and the difficulties do not subside as we get older and take on more responsibilities. They only increase. And therefore, it's key to learn early to be able to take those things on. And you got that in your very first branch summer. And then I know you branched again, right? I branched a second time again, probably not for the greatest reasons, but I don't like not being good at things in my life. And so I didn't have the success that I wanted the first summer. And I was like, I got to do it again because I didn't have the success that I wanted the first summer, which is again, probably not the greatest reason. But I trained extremely hard that summer to go back out there. I watched an hour's worth of video every day to improve my skills. And I sent the notes to Earl and Asim every day. And that was just my own system of accountability. I didn't need them to respond. That was me holding myself accountable to learning. Mm-hmm. So I went out that second summer and had a huge jump. I mean, we like tripled or quadrupled our sales from the summer before, which was a big leap. And that team was so close. And I actually shot them all message here. This was in summer of 2012. Um, I had about 13 team members that were really close. And I shot them all a call or a text here within the last couple months, making sure they're okay during COVID and just thanking them for that experience. and like thanking them for being a part of the team. We had a reunion actually at 12 months after that summer. And 13 people showed the same 13 that I was talking about a year later, which was really special to me to create that those bonds that camaraderie. And many of those people are actually still friends because they met in that office, which I think sometimes we mitigate how much how much potential we offer in relationships within Vector and the mm-hmm. friendships that we can offer. That's something that I know many of my friends, even though I've moved on from Vector six years now, I still communicate with frequently. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. What about uh, the following summer? What role were you in? I was a pilot sales manager. And under a seam again, which is great because I got to learn from him. And a couple of the biggest things that I got from working with a seam in that summer, I got to work with him more closely as his pilot. Is a seam really had this belief, and I think it's an important belief that if someone has accomplished it in the past, that means it can be accomplished again in the future. You just have to understand how they did it. And so for me, it was like you're human, I'm human. We can both accomplish the same thing. And that's true in most areas of life. So I'd ask myself the question, okay, what was the technique that they had? What was the process? Give me the the nuts and bolts. And then can I exert the same effort or potentially more? And when you combine those things with a similar technique and a more enhanced work ethic, I think that's when the results come that people don't quite understand because people usually have one or the other. And when you can combine them, the results are parallel. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Well, you were known, Michael, during your days at Vector, you already were developing a reputation for being a great student of life. I know you were someone who asked a lot of questions and sought out a lot of interactions with top people, both around you and, you know, outside of your division. 
And that reputation has kind of followed you over these last few years that you're really a student of life. Can you unpack that a little bit, just how that evolved for you and what that looks like in your life to this day? It's one of the most influential moments in my life. I look back, it was uh, my 11th or 12th birthday. And my father essentially got me this gift for my birthday. But to unpack that, my brother was the first pick in our little league draft, my little brother. And I want crying to my dad. I'm like, I'm the big brother. I'm supposed to be the first pick of the draft. And Rob's better than me at baseball and all this stuff. And he's like, well, do you want to get better? And I'm like, yeah. And so my birthday comes around and he opens the trunk of his car. And I'm expecting like a video game. I'm expecting something that is fun. And there were a bunch of books. And they were... (laughs) They were baseball books, though. And he said, you wanted to get better, right? And I'm like, yes, I do. He's like, then read these books. And I'm like wiping my eyes. And I'm like, okay, I will. <laughs> so I read those books. And no coach didn't show me how to throw a, uh, a four-seam fastball before. Crazy. At like 12 years old, that I didn't know how to grip a baseball properly. And so I was throwing a changeup. And then I learned how to throw a fastball. And it was such a quick fix. And I think that can be shown in a lot of areas of life that sometimes we're just doing things improperly and we can have a coach or a piece of information show us that we can make a minor adjustment and see a huge boost in our level of results. And so I made a huge jump in my skill set after reading all those baseball books. I became obsessed and I just wanted to know all the best information because I found mm-hmm. I can digest that information and then I can execute on the information. I was able to get results that were really strong. And I became a you know, great pitcher. I'd thrown seven no-hitters by the age of 17 and was just able to take that philosophy into Vector also. Wow, that's such a cool story, Michael. And, and it just really speaks to the idea that all the information we need in our life is available to us whether it's in books or in research or in conversations with others, everything we need in order to be able to hit any goal is available to us if we seek it, right? It's not just going to show up in our lives. Usually we have to seek it. You know, you have to read the book or you have to go to the meeting where you're listening to somebody, you know, you have to take the notes if you're going to be able to internalize the ideas, but it's all there for us, right? How has this continued to be a part of your life? I think one thing is if you want to speak to people that are successful, it helps to ask the right questions. And enable in order to ask the right questions, it's helpful to be familiar with their work. And so when I spoke to people within Vector specifically, I would know their strengths already. I would know what they're really good at. Mm. I would approach them with educated questions on what they're good at. That way they knew that I had taken the time to educate myself on their background. And I'm asking questions that are pointed that they can give me specific answers to, not generalized. And that's how people prefer to answer questions, especially people whose time is valuable. It's like, how can I answer in a fashion that is exactly the perfect question? And I became really obsessed with that. And the belief that you can learn something from anyone. I remember like within Vector, when I was a manager, I looked up all the managers who had statistics. You could see on Vector Live, you could see people's results. 
And I remember uh, Caitlin Rogers. She has seven touch per launch. Like, how is it possible? You know, as a manager, I'm like, that seems crazy. And she wasn't the manager that always sold the most, but she had this program down to a T. And I took a lot from mm-hmm. that one specific program. But she she rarely got asked questions because she wasn't always the number one manager in the nation. And so right. I always looked at people for like, what are your strengths? Because I can learn from you. And I'm a detective when it comes to trying to figure out people's strengths and really believing that everyone has something to offer. Yeah, that's a great insight. I can't tell you how many times I've had someone come to me in a vector context and ask me a question that is just not up my alley or it's not up my alley now. Maybe it's something that I did as a division manager that I no longer do as a region manager. And I let them know, I'm like, hey, listen, I don't know that I'm the right person to ask that particular question, but let me steer you to who I think is. And um, in the meantime, you know, let me offer you an insight that I think could help you. And I'll, I'll try to you know, share something that's a little bit more up my alley. But it is important to think about who you're asking your questions of and make sure that you're getting advice from people who are excelling in those particular areas and excelling now in those particular areas. So that's key. So ultimately, you decided to make the leap and move to San Francisco here, Silicon Valley. I guess we can call San Francisco Silicon Valley. Those of us that live in San Jose think it's you know down here, but uh, yeah. you know it's all one big swath these days. Yeah. What has it taken to succeed in such a hyper competitive place? I want to also answer why I moved to Silicon Valley because I think it's important for people to to hear this and understand that this is how life works sometimes. So I moved to San Francisco April of 2017, and if you asked me in December of uh, 2016, if I was going to move to the Bay Area, I would have told you 0% chance. Mm. And I was in this moment in life where I was 24 years old, and both my parents born and raised in New York City. And when you grow up in New York, it's amazing. It's kind of like the center of the universe. You watch all the movies, the television shows, etc. And you're kind of right. conditioned to believe that this is where everything's happening. It's the capital of the world, right? <laughs> in many ways, it is. But both of my parents had this limited view of the world because they've only lived in one place. And I said to myself, if I don't move now, I'm going to have more things that keep me here. And I might always see the world from the same lens. Mm. So I knew that I had to get out. I didn't know where. And so I went to a couple events in the Bay Area. And the conversations I was having with people, I recognized they weren't conversations I was getting back home. And so I decided then that I was going to move to San Francisco and did it in the course of like a month. And did it super quickly. I think what it takes to succeed here is being ambitious and asking the right questions. Again, you're probably going to hear me say this a lot. Is San Francisco's one of the most resourced places in the world. And people... I've never been in a place where people are more open to making introductions. It's like the introduction economy here. People are always trying to pay it forward, help you, because they don't know who you're going to meet that can help them later on. And so I was in this position where I asked myself, like, how can I become one degree of separation away from everyone? So when I first moved to San Francisco, I'm not saying that this is the way that everybody should do it, but I held myself to a standard of going to four networking events every week, which is pretty exhausting. And I did that for six months to start when I lived in San Francisco. And so I was out probably five or six nights a week meeting people, 
consistently. And you learn. I made mistakes. I didn't create an amazing relationship with everyone, but I, I kind of found my niche of what types of conversations I would have with people. Mm-hmm. And again, I started asking the right questions and having deeper conversations with people. And once I established that, I started having a really strong friend group in the city that supported me and enabled my success. I like what you said about finding your niche of what kind of conversations to have with people. I think everybody has things they like to talk about for sure. And if you can consider like, what are some of those things that you like to talk about that are simultaneously have some relation to advancement, growth, learning, right? Becoming more, being able to open up those sorts of conversations with people are ways that you can connect and their openness and desire to engage with you on those conversations is sort of like a filter on which people you should be talking to and which you shouldn't, right? Somebody that, you know, doesn't engage with you on stuff like that probably isn't somebody you're going to want to talk to as much, right? I have a a lot of different people that I've met here in the Silicon Valley. And I note that some of them, you know, they just kind of stay at a superficial level in their conversations and they don't really engage in conversations about growth. And and um, that's okay. Like they're okay people to hang out with, but they're not the people I'm going to spend the most of my time with. And they're not the people I'm going to engage in the really deep conversations with. Whereas others are like really willing to like dive in and talk about any, you know, important topic and engage. And um, it just creates such great learning opportunities when you can be around people like that. What else do you feel like helps people to succeed in a place that's really hyper-competitive? Getting to know your strengths is really important. There's a lot of things that I'm horrible at. And there's many areas in my life where I'm really deficient. But knowing my strengths, like I'm great at getting referrals. I'm really good at building rapport. And I know that I'm willing to put the work in and I follow through on stuff. If I tell you that I'm going to send you an email following up from our conversation, I'm going to send you an email following up from our conversation. Mm-hmm. And so like recognize what are your strengths and just try and play towards those. There's certainly different philosophies on this, but I find that just playing towards your strengths is the most effective way to at least get you like past the status quo. Because if you're living in your genius, if you're living in the things that you ordinarily do better than most people and are inclined to execute on, it's going to feel easier for you and you're going to see success. And that's going to be something that inspires you to do more because you're going to get addicted to that cycle of, man, I did this, it worked. I did this, it worked. I'm good at it. And when we feel like we're making progress, it enables us to feel like I can do anything. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a strength of follow through, right? That when you say you're going to do something, you will do it. And this is something that I think is noteworthy for us to talk about right here is that that's a strength that everybody can develop because it truly is, it's not, doesn't take any genius for that. It's a decision, right? That the other person is important enough that you're going to make sure that you do what you told them that you were going to do. And what that does is that builds a high degree of trust, which creates more openness and more opportunities for deeper conversations, stronger relationships, all that stuff. When you do the opposite, which is you say somebody you're going to do something and then you don't do it, imagine how they feel about that. Try to put yourself in the perspective of the other person, how they feel. And they just start doubting, like, does that person really care about me? Like, am I that unimportant to them that they can't follow through on sending that email they said they were going to send. That's the feeling that gets created on the other side of the coin. And it it certainly tears down 
the opportunities for relationships and connections. So that simple act of having good follow-through, doing what you say you're going to do is certainly a key element of relationship building. I want to add one thing to that. Oftentimes, I don't even see it that way, Dan. And I think I get this from my, my father who has just like ironclad integrity is my word to myself is more important than my word to other people. Mm. I'll say I'm going to do something. I follow through on it for me first, not because of them. I follow through because I said I was going to do it and upholding my principles, my integrity and my morals. Like once you get a chink in that armor, it's really hard to replenish that chink. So I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to fall onto that ground. Wow. That's awesome insight. Thanks for adding that in. I know that during the time you've been there in San Francisco, you've spent some time working closely with Ben Skemper and he's a illustrious former Cutco alum. I'm sure we'll have him on the podcast at some point. And um, his coaching organization that's now called Abundant. And I would just love to hear some of the important concepts that you have learned to share with others through your affiliation with Ben and his team. Yeah, there's a few. This probably will be the most important one, I think. Be curious before critical. And as humans, we cast judgment on everyone. We psychologically label people because that in our own minds allows us to feel safe with what they are and familiar. And we're constantly running this pattern. Mm. But asking questions to seek understanding. Like I think that's one thing I could have done a better job of when I was at Vector is there were some reps that just I didn't relate with. And I would impose my model of the world, my views onto how they should do things, not really understanding them and not seeking to understand what they want, just assuming what they want. And so be curious before critical. There's three ways that I do this. Firstly, I want to understand and I'll ask the question, what's important to you right now? And I'll dive deeper on that. I want to understand what their current priorities are. Understanding their current priorities will give us a pretty good snapshot of why they're at least behaving the way they are in this current moment. Two, I want to understand what their future goals are. Like, how is this tying into what they want to accomplish long term? And then three, I want to understand how they grew up because so much of our development is done at the early childhood stage. I want to have an understanding of why they might be acting this way. It could be something in how they were parented or because they grew up in a certain area or because they grew up with certain privileges or certain disadvantages that I didn't. And so not imposing the way I see the world onto them is, is keen. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. So being curious before critical, asking questions to seek understanding. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. Tell us a little more about some of the coaching concepts that you feel are critical. So there are three ways to respond to a problem. At least this was the content we covered. The first is you can ignore, which many people do. They have a problem in their life. They stuff it away. They suppress it. They put it somewhere you know, that no one else can see it. You know, that trap door in the basement that no one else has access to or even knows it's there. You can, secondly, place blame, which is what a lot of people do. They tell all the reasons why it's not their fault. They look for all the circumstances that support why they didn't get what they wanted. It's always someone else's problem. It's always on someone else. And the third is you can look for the gift in the situation. And this is something I look through this lens every day of 
And we could always be focusing on what we don't have versus what we have. That's a choice. And so looking at what we do have rather than what we don't have is going to lead to better success because I'm focusing on where my momentum is and where mm-hmm. I'm making progress rather than reasons why I'm not going to get what I want. Mm, that's compelling. And that's a great insight for the moment we're in right now in this you know crazy year of 2020 where there's so much uncertainty about even what's going to happen a month from now. And being able to focus on what we do have versus what we don't have, focus on what the gifts of the situation are, just such a critical insight for you know our mental attitude and our ability to be effective. Yeah, it's something I'm really thankful that I have that framework. And it's something that we can all implement. And I know you mentioned the integrity thing. Just how we choose to respond to situations, that's also always our choice. And every single person that listens to this has access to that. Yeah, indeed. I think it's one of the most valuable lessons that anyone can learn in life is that, you know, we have the opportunity to choose how we respond to any situation, right? We're not Pavlov's dog that has to salivate every single time the bell rings. Like we can choose exactly what to do. The way Jim Rohn puts it is you're not a goose. You don't have to fly south in the winter. You can fly north. You can fly east. You can fly west. You can say it looks pretty good right here. I'm going to stay right here. Right? We're not driven by instinct and the genetic code. We have the dignity of choice and that ability to choose our response to any situation. It's certainly one of the most compelling insights I've ever heard. Mm. Hey, now I know that during your time here, particularly when you were coaching and doing work with Abundant, you began to have a lot of conversations with Brandon Brown. Brandon, for anyone in the Cutco audience, uh, has been number one representative in the company, I think three of the last four years. and sold over a million dollars last year. And he credits you, Michael, and a lot of the conversations he's had with you for a part of his success. Like it's been a powerful part of keeping him on his A game. I would love to be a fly on the wall in a conversation between you and Brandon. Like, what do you guys talk about? What comes up? Brandon's such a funny person to me because there are almost no other people that I know that basically accomplish every goal that they set out to do. <laughs> and just always does. He'll call me and he might be feeling down. He's like, I'm really off track for my goal. And I'm almost pretty dismissive of it because I'm like, dude, you always find a way. Like, <laughs> come on. Like, we both know you're going to hit this. Like, who are we kidding here? And the funny thing is, is like a lot of people are good at like, one stint, like a push, right? And can sustain for a push and hit a goal. It just feels like Brandon hits his goal every month. I'm like, dude, what the heck, man? Like, that's not the way humans operate. But I think what, like where he really benefits from our conversation outside of my jocularity and enlightening him up because he's already super hard on himself and he's going to hold himself to higher standards than anybody else can hold him to. I think that's a really important lesson is I'm just talking about like what I'm learning with him because I think sometimes we get so focused on, on only learning in one area of life that we forget to look at other areas of life. And I'll be talking about some of the things that I'm learning recently and he'll get, that's how it goes in a push or when you're trying to break a record, which Brandon's always trying to basically break his own records right now. You just get so caught up in this one area of life 
And I think this is actually a big reason why I broke the January record the second time is the first January, I didn't have fun. I didn't have any fun. And I worked, I think I worked harder the, the January that I sold 30 grand than the, the January that I broke it. But I had so much fun the second time. And so bringing those different areas of your life, it's really hard to just only focus on work, which can happen during a push period. And I think the conversations I have with Brandon, he's getting a breath of fresh air outside of like what his results are. And he's also seeing how I'm growing in one area of life that he hmm. might not be focused on currently. And he's able to bring that in. And it, it makes work rejuvenated again. That is so cool to hear. Just the idea of sharing what you're learning with each other, right? We all need to have that kind of an environment somewhere in our life. And if you don't already have it, it's important to manufacture that where you find people that you know are going to want to get together. And, you know, in the modern climate of 2020, where Zoom has become such a common thing, like it's so easy to get together with uh, anyone anywhere on a regular basis and be able to have these kinds of conversations and talk about what are we learning? How are we growing? Right. Cause that's such a key area to stay motivated and stay inspired. And it continues diversifying our skill set as well. And, you know, when I look at Brandon, like I see a lot of the same things you see of like a guy that hits goals like a machine. But what I also see is like this innate wisdom that just seems to come out whenever he talks, like he'll say something mind blowing almost every time I listen to him. And I'm like, where did that come from? And those things come from interacting with people like you, with interacting with other leaders, with, you know, conversing and discussing goals and ideas. That's where like real true wisdom comes out is from that process. And so it's cool to hear that you guys are doing that. So what's happening for you now? Michael, tell us about the profile firm. Yeah. So I decided I asked myself this question. You see many of the tech moguls in the Bay. They're all friendly. As a matter of fact, some of them might live on your street, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) But they're all friendly with each other. And it's similar to what Cutco's like. Like when you're a branch manager, even if you don't know the other branch managers across the nation, you know what they're going through. And you can relate to them. You can pick up the phone. You can have a conversation and say, I know how that feels, man. I know how that feels. Like that... That's so powerful. And so I recognize that trend amongst many of the big tech people that they're all friends. I'm like, of course they're friends because they were actually like fighting this fight of building a successful business together. Mm. So when one person was succeeding and one person was behind, they'd have conversations and same way the branch would with a pilot or another manager and have that conversation and like, what can I do better? And it's not always like direct, like selling knives to selling knives, but there are certain principles that you can take from one end to the other that you can implement and succeed. Those are things that are so powerful. And so I recognize this. I'm like, how can I, how can I get in on this wave? The founders are going to be the people in the economy that are eventually the most influential. And so I asked myself, do I want to start a company that's like venture backed, raising a lot of money in the technology field? I said, maybe at some point, but that's not what I want right now. But how can I add value to founders? And so I started speaking to many of my founder friends in the Bay Area and just mm-hmm. asking a simple question like, hey, what's, what's the hardest part about building your startup? And the answer was consistent. It was hiring. Oh my God, hiring is so hard. Hiring, 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 hiring. I'm like, hmm, 
And if someone solved that problem for you, like, would that be really valuable for you? And they're like, oh my God, it would take so much off my plate. I'd be able to do this, 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 and this that I'm way more effective at and take time away from something that I'm really not naturally that good at and give me more time to focus back on what my strengths are. Mm. So I I saw that trend and I was like, I'm going to A, build great relationships with these people and B, add a ton of value to them. And that's how I want to be on that wave, that next wave of successful entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley, like the next Mark Zuckerberg's, Jack Dorsey's, you know, Drew Houston's, like I want to be on that next wave with them and be in communication with them because long-term those are really valuable people to have in your network. Yeah. Awesome. I love how you had conversations where you're asking people, Hey, what is your biggest challenge? And you know, how could that be solved? And would it be valuable if that was solved for you? And that's just a great way of people constructing in their own mind ideas about what they might do, businesses they might hatch, right? Ways that they might be able to add value to their networks and have some bigger opportunities for themselves. Very cool. So, you know, Michael, the theme of the podcast is changing lives. And I'm just interested in wrapping up here as you look into your future, right? How do you aspire to change people's lives through your work or through your influence? I think one thing I had a realization of, and I hold the right to change my opinion, but the one thing I'm committed to for the rest of my life and improving is my ability to communicate. And if I could work on this for the rest of my life, and I thought about it when I was just graduating and I had sold a lot of Cutco, I was like, man, I'm such a great communicator. Like I'm so good at this, like compared to everybody else. And like, I'm like a master communicator over here. And like now that I'm six to eight years removed from that, I can see that there are layers of communication and it's something I want to continue to commit to. Like I want to be able to have conversations where I help people feel understood. I want to help people feel seen. I want to help ask questions to bring people to thoughts that they'd never had before. I want to ask questions that help people see parts of things that they've never seen before. So for me, I think future long-term, like I'm just committed to me to communication. Like how can I enable people to be more understood and deliver messages more effectively that allow others to relate. Wow. That's a great insight. That's a great thought for you to have just the ways that your own ability to communicate can influence the world and impact other people. It's a powerful idea that I think everyone can take home today that I really like. So Michael, awesome stuff today. Thanks so much for your time on the podcast. This has been really great. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. And uh, shout out to the whole Vector world. Thank you for all that you've done for me. Awesome. Michael Ampersino, that was so powerful, everyone. From the beginning where he talked about Asim Hafiz being able to see him as bigger than he was, as more capable. That's a common theme among many people you know, who credit their original Vector manager as helping them see themselves as more capable. The concept of are your beliefs about doubt or are your beliefs about success stronger? And how do you consistently keep the doubt away and maintain your beliefs about success? That could be a whole podcast episode in and of itself. Michael talked about the challenge of running a branch team and that uh, he learned that who you are during the hard times is really who you are. We call these character building experiences or character building days. You'll all have them. 
And when you do, the way you respond is a critical piece of determining your future. I love the baseball book story with his dad and just the idea that all the information we need is available to us. We just have to seek it out. Michael talked about opening up introductions, finding niches of topics that become comfortable for you in conversations. That whole idea of communicating and networking. I have a workbook available on my website. It's free. Uh, go to dancassetta.com, changinglivespodcast.com if you want and just click on the homepage and you'll uh, find a way of getting access to this workbook on connecting with others and networking and opening conversations. And I want to add that I am a person who is profoundly introverted. Those of you that know me may not expect that because oftentimes you see me in the context of communicating with others or speaking from the stage or whatever it might be. But I'm very introverted and I have learned some ways of still becoming great at connecting and getting to know people and having powerful conversations. That was a good insight from Michael that I thought was uh, worth repeating. And the idea of uh, when you're having powerful conversations with others, sharing what you're learning. If you're a leader of any kind, one of the greatest recommendations I can give to you is get some of the key people in your organization or some of the key people in your life together on a periodic basis. In Vector, we call it our key staff. I used to do it once every two weeks and share what you're learning with others and have them share as well. And when you can have those sorts of interactions, those sorts of conversations, everyone is growing at light speed and results will simultaneously begin to move in a very positive direction. And it's one of the most powerful ways of advancing any team is facilitating that process of personal growth. Hope you enjoyed Michael Ambrosino today. Thanks for supporting the podcast, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about changing lives.